Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to May's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, to run through some of the key talking points from the last month. But before we start, I'm sure we will be talking about lithium prices during the podcast. And I'd just like to flag BMR's How to Invest in Hard Rock Lithium. We often get questions from listeners on elements of the industry, and we've tried to put as much knowledge as we can into this report, which discusses all elements of investing from basic to advanced. It's well worth a read, and it's a snip at only £20. Check it out on our website to download it. So hi, Cormac. How are you doing? Hey, Matt. Great. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. So uh, you have been in uh, Singapore for the Fast Markets Conference. How did that go? Interesting conference. Timing was a little strange because it was uh, during the Chinese labor holiday. So we didn't, didn't have as many Chinese as I thought was going to be there, but still a few traveled. But fantastic conference, actually. As you expect, many of the Australian players were there, of course. Uh-huh. Some big names from Korea were there as well. Not so much from Japan. And we have, uh, of course, the Singaporean traders. We have... SGX there, of course, marketing their mm-hmm. uh, hedging tools. Um, and one of the big themes, of course, was uh, out of themes, of course, were IRA and sodium ion batteries. Sodium ion batteries. And uh, yeah, we uh, every, all lead, all roads lead back to sodium ion at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's not getting away from it. I think it, I think, I think it will fade out as, uh, as we see the market start to stabilize the lithium ion market. But in my look, see into it, it's just not there yet. There's no supply chain. There's no yeah, I, I think, you know, as we discussed last month, I think it's the supply chain as much as anything that, that sort of worries me. And, you know, I think that the market's perhaps in, in, in interpreting or interpolating a little bit too much into a few relatively small announcements. Yeah, and the uh, LCA... Footprint doesn't look great either, according to some research that was presented at Fast Markets as well. Is that on the cathode side or the anode side? or That is the entire cell. Right. Looking at the oxide variance and the PBR, Russian blue, a PBA. PBR is a, a beer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Probably a slip there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was an interesting study. But the, you know... Um, I had another client on this morning and they were looking at, uh, you know, the more of a North Asian client. So the big push against LFP and they were looking at the LCA LFP is a lot more intense. You know, it depends on which study you read, of course, as you know, and LFP, LCA, and the study they were reading was a lot more intense than NMC, where other studies suggest the opposite. NMC is lower than LFP. It's sort of six and a half a dozen, and I guess it very much is de- dependent on where you source your nickel and cobalt from. Yeah. I think if you source your nickel from sulfide sources, a lot cleaner than if you source your nickel from, from laterite, as a lot of the Western world OEMs and a lot of the Chinese OEMs are starting to do, then your your ternary has a pretty substantial carbon footprint. It's going to be very interesting, but I think the... Um, 
I saw a very interesting study on sodium iron, which was just, was just drawing attention to the anode and yeah. suggesting that the hard carbon part of the anode was a major uh, portion of the overall cost of the cell. And it's going to be very interesting to see whether that is impactive in terms of cost of the cell going forward as, as we start to to increase the, the scale of the industry and also on the LCO basis. So, you know, there's some quite dirty ways of making hard carbon, which come back to basically waste materials from from the refining, from, from refining of oil, or there are some pretty clean methods for manufacturing hard carbon, which come back to sort of pre-processing lignin, which is basically a forest product. So it's going to be very interesting to see. But they all require high temperature, right? I believe the lignin application is a is a time issue, so it's not you know it doesn't require sort of thousand two thousand degrees centigrade. Pretty high, yeah, um, yeah. A lot more has to be done. Um, like there's clients of mine are concerned about this is what it does. It stymies the investment going into the lithium battery supply chain. They were like. There's a real concern that uh, lithium is going to lose 50% of the market share by 2030. Uh, I mean, when these announcements come out, it's uh, it's it kind of just puts a little roadblock in, in front of the industry. I think it but, sort of comes back to to all of the issues that we've been struggling with the industry up up till now. And you know, a lot of people were obviously because it's such an immature industry, flip flopping around on technology. It doesn't actually help with the commitment of capital. We see it a lot in the raw material end of the business. People are like, well, why should I commit capital to lithium projects if, you know, four or five years down the line, we're going to be focusing on sodium ion batteries or we're going to be focusing on on solid state? It's a real six and a half a dozen. And of course, you know, the longer that we don't commit to investment in raw materials, probably the longer the period of of elevated raw material prices is going to be yeah exactly it really does have effect throughout the supply chain probably not what we saw recently uh, i think in terms of lithium but it just scares it just puts a little risk factor for uh, certain investors where but you know the outcome of the fast markets i believe my personal outcome was that uh sodium is not going to be a particular worry for western or for the western ev market Energy yeah. storage is a different, a different matter because there's, as we mentioned in the last podcast, I feel like we're repeating ourselves, but there's mm-hmm. many, many chemistries you can use in energy storage and, and all are welcome. The yeah. place for all of them. The thing for sodium iron, if it genuinely is a third a quarter of the, the, the price of lithium iron, is that you can afford to double up, you know, in a way that you just can't afford to double up on, on lithium iron at the moment because the, the cost is too much. I don't believe any of these forecast prices on what sodium ion could be. There's no way they could possibly know. There's no supply chain to get those numbers from. I mean, I think in many ways that the situation in sodium ion is very similar to the situation in, in DLE, direct lithium extraction, because obviously, you know, DLE at this stage is a very much an experimental technology. Yeah. And it's impossible to know what, you know, iron exchange beads and things like that are going to cost when they're produced commercially. You know, a lot of the, the, the sort of forecasts that are in the market are should we say optimistic? Yeah, optimistic. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's with the theme of batteries. Whatever's coming next has to be higher energy density and lower cost, or one or the one or the other. And 
Sodium mm -hmm. can't meet the energy density, although there's roadmaps in China for 200 watt hour per kilogram. So that's, you know, that's mm -hmm. pretty decent. It's better than LFP. I don't know how they're going to get there, but... The thing about it is that they say it's better than LFP, but realistically, it's not better than LMFP or LFMP, <laughs> uh, whichever one you go for. And, and you know, if, if that's the case, the development line timescale is, is very much pushing towards LMFP. And I don't think at this stage, sodium iron could compete with LMFP. You know, it's all very well to say that it competes with LFP as it is now, but probably oh. LFP won't be standing still either. Yeah. I saw some numbers of actual sodium ion cells produced in China, and they're hovering around the 90 watt hour per kilogram, 100 watt hour per kilogram, like which is a lot lower than LFP in actual real commercially available cells. That's what you got to put it up against rather yeah. than theoretical numbers. Yeah, in a lab. Yeah, yeah, in a lab setting. There, you know, that you can buy commercial sodium ion cells. Is that saying fast markets? Sodium ion has been around uh, as long as... Uh, Lithium ion and the same players are involved. Good enough. Uh, you have Stanley Whittingham, you have Jeff Dan were involved in boat, boat chemistries in the early days. The reason we end up with lithium ion was the obvious difference between the two of them energy yeah. density. And, and even cycle life, sorry, on those commercially available cells is not any better than lithium ion cells on the over the. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that, that a lot of people sort of forget when they focus on energy density, but there, there are other issues to look at. And I think yeah, cycle yeah. life is a key one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Did the fast markets conference take place before lithium prices troughed or, or was it? So we had that in, uh, was it around May 1st? No, it was right just in the before, middle. Just before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So lithium prices troughed just around then. Uh, and obviously we've, we've started to see sort of a recovery and um, pretty much in line with with what you know we've suggested um in battery materials review and yeah. in our blogs over the last couple of months that really we got to a position in terms of the marginal cost of production where a lot of producers were bulking at, at the prices so we saw a huge production cut in in lithium carbonate over the last two or three months lithium carbonate from spodumene lithium carbonate from lipidolite and very interestingly, also lithium carbonate from recycling, highlighting that, again, you know, recycling is quite a high cost source of, of lithium carbonate. So we did see a, a pretty substantial decrease in lithium carbonate production over the last couple of months. Added that together with a little bit of restocking coming through from stronger than expected EV sales. And I think that uh, we're, we're looking at uh, quite a substantial bounce here in, in lithium prices. I can't say I'm not happy because when I made that call, uh, you couldn't find anyone in the market who was positive in lithium, and it was definitely squeaky <laughs> bum time. It happened pretty much as we expected, and uh, I think there's going to be a lot of sort of red faces among analysts because if you look in the sell side community, everybody's forecasting that lithium prices are going to continue to fall for the rest of this year, and it now looks like we put a bottom in and, and we're starting to bounce. So I think uh, when it comes to, to stocks and when it comes to looking at the sector, most sale-side houses are going to end up having to take up their models, their price forecast quite substantially. If you know the Chinese market, and I believe you do, that May Day, Labor Day time is the lead up to that could be the stocking period or just clean house period for Chinese companies after Labor Day. That's when activity starts ramping up again. And that's what we saw is a 
I think uh, lithium carbonate went up 15,000 RMB in in 48 hours. Uh, yeah. It's kind of held on as well. I mean, as we record this today, I mean, the lithium carbonate price, the spot price, according to SMM, went up 8% on the day. So, wow. you know, we're definitely seeing quite a substantial bounce off what were definitely oversold levels. We're coming around to about sort of $30 a kilogram in, in battery grade terms. You know, if we go back to, to $40 a kilogram, well, that would be what, a, a 30 odd percent increase just on, on where they are at the moment. That's going to be a, a, a pretty substantial move. And coming back to something that we were we were talking about earlier with regards to offline, with regards to sell price, I mean, that's going to have an impact on sell prices and it's going to have an impact on EV prices. So it's quite possible that you've seen the the last of the EV price cuts for now, and the next move on EV prices may very well be in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. That's not going to suit us, Matt. We haven't bought our EVs yet. <laughs> I, I'm quite away from being able to afford a, an EV anytime soon, unless it's a Wulin Hongguan Mini. <laughs> That's the only EV I can afford. I think we can post one over to you. <laughs> <laughs> I was speaking to a long, a long, uh, long-term or original lithium ion, a lithium carbonate integrated lithium ion carbonate converter at Fast Markets, and they remember the, the the bad days, as you might call it, or the low price days. And they were like, today, the price that we were looking at, like last week, in the old days, they, they wouldn't expect, they couldn't dream of getting like one hundred ninety thousand RMB or two thousand, yeah. two hundred thousand RMB price. So, for them, long-term and integrated. They can still make money at these prices, but uh, for kind of the newbies in town who priced their model or uh, priced their projects around the six hundred thousand RMB or seventy uh, USD a, K, a kg, the economics don't add up. But if you're there a long time, an OG, I, as they would say, uh, I, I agree. And I mean, I think for the you know for the producers that have been around for donkey's years, like the green green bushes and the sort of yeah. Atacama brine guys, you know, they can make money at. Ten dollars a kilogram in in this market, but for the other guys, for the for the new new guys on the block, it's slightly higher, and and for the even newer guys on the block who've come in over the last six to twelve months, it's materially higher. And uh, you know that was one of the arguments that we made that uh, when you increase the demand to the extent that you've increased the demand in lithium, then you are bringing on higher cost projects, and and higher cost projects require prices to be higher to to generate a return. And I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting in lithium this year is that I think a lot of people who were going to bring in lipidolite projects in China, because lithium prices were always going up, uh, have probably changed their mind now. My gut feeling is that a lot of the lipidolite projects that were on the drawing board are now not on the drawing board anymore. And on top of that, you know, as we flag in BMR this month and last month as well, we're also seeing some some reductions in forecast production out of Australia, out of other regions for 2023 as well, because expansion projects haven't haven't hit their targets. You know, I'm not I'm not convinced that supply is going to be as as big in 2023 as a lot of analysts were expecting and, and potentially not in 2024 either. So quite possible that the market remains a little bit tighter than perhaps people people have been forecasting. Good I point. suppose one of the really interesting things, I'll let you talk in a second, is the 
sort of pseudo nationalization fervor that's come out of Chile in April. I mean, I have to say, looking back, there wasn't any particularly new news from Chile. It was just spun in a particular way as to create maximum uncertainty in the market. Since the election in Chile and the sort of lurch to not even the, the center, but the far right, you've got to suggest that it's probably going to be quite a struggle for the um, for the president to get through any sort of level of nationalization going forward. So, you know, we might be back to status quo ante. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think as you stayed in the BMR, the tread is always there, or the risk is always there. And for new investment to come in there, from now and onwards, the, that there's an opportunity for nationalization of the lithium resources. Is yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is a real issue. I mean, you know, I think when governments look at raw materials projects, they sort of look at them and go, oh, they're making lots of money. But they, they don't necessarily rec- recognize that, you know, it's very difficult to raise the money that goes into those projects. And, you know, these are half a billion, billion dollar projects. If I, as an investor, am going to invest in a project like that, then I want to guarantee my returns over five or 10 years. And if a government turns around and changes the goalposts or signals that it's going to change the goalposts, then I'm not going to invest in that country. And, uh, you know, as Robert Friedland, the the noted mining entrepreneur suggested, you know, this, this isn't going to reflect well on Chile in terms of people going in. And, you know, we've seen... We've seen the impact in Mexico in terms of how just mentioning the N-word, nationalization, by the way, impacts the investment climate. It hasn't impacted it well, and I I worry that um, it's not going to impact it particularly well in Chile either. Well, you know who has an appetite for that kind of risk is China. Yeah. Uh, Nationalization, I'm sure they'd be happy to work within uh, that framework and uh, they've already, you know, they're in it in uh, in, uh, in Mexico. It will scare off, of course, Western investors. But I think uh, China, our state Chinese companies, not per se, uh, the lithium majors will have an appetite for nationalized uh, lithium. uh, Part of the nationalization program is uh, the JVs will uh, include companies that know how to produce lithium chemicals from brine. And also have access to capital. And I think uh, something like 1.5 billion was, was oh, yeah, mentioned. Yeah. And of course, the Chinese companies got pretty easy access to capital. So, um, yeah, I think uh, that's fair. And I, you know, I should just mention Argentina because obviously that's very much the engine of lithium brine development in, in Latin America. And, you know, I w- would have to say it comes with its own risks. Now, I've been following this industry and associated industries for over 20 years. I've known a lot of companies that can put capital into Argentina very well. I haven't known too many companies that have been able to take capital out of Argentina. Um, And from an investment point of view, that's, that's a key consideration. So, you know, I think that there is a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen from Argentina going forward. And uh, given the amount of investment that we're seeing going into Argentina, that is a concern, definitely a concern. Yeah, a lot of investment going into Argentina in the lithium space. Some very nice, looking at your uh, monitor and and drilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some some really nice, uh, yeah, yeah, really nice uh, findings. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. So moving a, a little bit downstream now, and we obviously, uh, I mean, one of the big talking points of the last uh, couple of months or so is the big increase in Chinese EV exports. Um, that's, that looks like being a, a pretty substantial change in markets, wouldn't you say? EV exports is big business for Chinese EV makers these days. So uh, if you look at the EV production and sales in China, a considerable portion of that is going to the ports to be shipped to US in terms of Tesla, made in China, Europe, made in China, Tesla, and of course, BYD are having making big moves in many countries. And, and My interest is actually, yeah. I mean, I know that the European Union gets a lot of column inches. My interest is actually rest of Asia. I mean, there's a lot of big auto demand countries in Asia with big populations. I mean, Indonesia stands out. You've yep. obviously got Malaysia, you've got Thailand. These are not really being targeted by Western OEMs. There's a huge market out there for Chinese OEMs to export into these markets, yeah. potentially into the Indian market, although that's more of a two-wheeler market. But there's millions, hundreds of millions of people you know, living in these ex-China Asian countries, rest of Asian countries, who are potentially EV buyers. And there's a massive market for the Chinese to export into, I think. The Japanese and let's just say the Korean uh, have, you know, have dominated South Asian, uh, Southeast Asian market for many years in terms yeah. of vans, two-wheelers. You got Honda, you know, all the two-wheelers are Japanese, well, not all. And same in India. And they have factories there also. So mm. they produce the ICE vehicles there. Uh, so the Japanese. But if, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's a real touch and go in Southeast Asia in terms of one of the biggest issues there would be the charging, of course, um, yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. And, and same in India. But for the two-wheelers, of course, it looks like the, the model they're going to adopt is swappables, I think. is. And I mean, indeed, we've got a, a study on battery swapping uh, and Indian two-wheelers in this month's BMR. And I have to say that for two-wheelers, battery swapping certainly makes sense i mean you know the, the the weight of the battery is not relevant compared to a to an electric vehicle a four-wheeled electric vehicle you know you can certainly pick up your batteries and um you know there's a the potential to build swapping stations either in petrol stations in convenience stores even just at the side of the road so india is primarily a two-wheeler market i don't see that changing anytime soon but the potential for growth of electric two-wheelers in India is huge. And and obviously, you know, people don't are not really thinking about it at the moment, but obviously the ESS potential in India is huge as well because there's a very, very substantial investment going into renewables. I don't think it's really being appreciated overly much in, in the West, but India could be a massive, massive market for batteries going forward. And I think the the other thing that's very interesting, and I, I'm not sure if people in the West are aware of it, but the humongous investment in solar that's going on in China at the moment. And uh, I think China was the biggest installer of solar power in 2022 by a yeah. mile. Oh, yeah. Much, much bigger than probably the rest of the world put together. And if that's the case, 
you've got to think that um, ESS is going in alongside those solar plants. Oh, yeah. China um, installed the most ESS in 2022 than anywhere else. Um, uh, and they used to be high. In 2020, they were way behind. I mean, yeah. in the US, and they just overnight almost. I might be going to Battery India conference in India in October. So, oh, brilliant! Very keen to see what's going on the ground. Well, there. look forward to to your reports from that. But one of the things that I don't think the market's really picking up on is the huge potential and growth in the ESS markets. I mean, you know, oh by God. 2035, 2040, in gigawatt hour terms, the ESS market has the potential to be bigger than the EV market, and the rate of growth that's yeah. pushing through in that market is bigger, is faster than anything we're seeing in EVs. So if you're an investor, you're out there, you you owe it to yourself to check out the ESS market because it is an amazingly fast-growing market that shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, it was underestimated until quite recently. For example, the Chinese battery makers did not focus on that at all. That's the CATLs, BYDs, yeah. they would not, in hierarchy, they would supply gigawatts of power to OEMs and 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 cancel contracts with ESS installers, developers. That's changed. I'm not sure. Uh, just squeaky pants stuff there, Matt. Saying it's going to be greater than the e-mobility. Would you say 2035? The Post 2035. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to check your pants in 20. <laughs> yeah, you can check my pants. January first. Yeah, yeah. There'll probably be a problem anyway within continents by that time. So. Yeah. 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 The problem with ESS is it's changing is every battery factory thus far is geared up for e-mobility and there's no real specific even though we have seen it happen in china specific ess dedicated plants but some but of these there's a lot of quite sort of tier two and tier three battery makers yeah. that are making lfp cells that, that, that you Those know guys, are going into yeah. ess yeah they're hoovering up that business that was kind of neglected by the the, the big guys uh um, yeah. over the last few years um, but um, yeah, the the growth in ESS is, is was not forecasted any recently to be. You know, in 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 US, it could be thirty percent in twenty thirty, if you look conservatively of the yeah. battery capacity that's going going to be installed in twenty thirty, which is huge. But access to cells is the issue, and especially with IRA. Uh, well, except there's no IRA. You know, you can IRA doesn't affect ESS per se because. Um, it does if you if you sort of manufacture it in in the US, but uh, uh, at the moment yeah, there's not. A, I mean, I think there's probably two producers I'm aware of that are that are sort of really pushing yeah. ESS. I mean, one's Frere, and I think the other one is Fluence. Those, those are the... uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, IRA does not mean you can't. Chinese battery manufacturers can't ship batteries to to US. It just means it just means they can't get tax credits. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I call it the uh, NMC-backed IRA, or IRA-backed NMC. It's basically for NMC chemistries. And, you know, Chinese might be able to compete with the LFP chemistry against uh, LFP. I mean, so NM IRA-backed NMC mm. in the open market is one of, you know, uh, after we examined it, you know, it's, it's quite tight. NMC mm. credits versus Chinese-made LFP cells. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be very very dependent on what goes on with the uh, PCAM uh, and the lithium raw material prices, and at times it's going to be economic, and at times it probably is is going to be touch and go, probably uneconomic. So it's going to be very interesting. I mean, well, I am aware of some developers trying to sort of develop 
lithium iron, so LFP plants in the US, in Europe. Yeah. So countries with a free trade agreement with, with the US or potentially with a free trade agreement. So I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see how that develops over time. Yeah, I was reading, uh, so the IRA, when it passed, was scheduled for 30 billion in, in credits, but the number estimated number, but that's since jumped to 190 billion. And I'm not sure that would have passed if that was the number that was included. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's quite costly. Um, does the US have so 190 billion? Talking about the the US, and I guess one of the, the things that stood out for me this month was this um, this bill that the EPA introduced on uh, emission targets. And it's a really substantial bill. I mean, they're talking about, I'm not sure if it's actually a, even a bill. It's a, it's a rule that the EPA is suggesting. They're talking about reducing their uh, emission targets to 82 grams of CO2 per mile on average for each OEM brand in the US by 2032. I think that's down something like 50 or 60% from the 2026 target. And it's a really interesting strategy. It kind of mirrors the strategy that we saw from the EU, really in the sort of period from sort of 2016 to 2019, right at the beginning of the EV story. And uh, basically the, the EU catalyzed huge demand for EVs by basically forcing OEMs to, to lower their tailpipe emissions. And it seems that the EPA is taking a leaf out of that book. Now, that strategy worked with flying colors in the Eurozone. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that works in the US, particularly because it's coming after the IRA. And obviously, the EU strategy came right at the beginning of this move into batteries and EVs before there was subsidy subsidies on the table. This is yeah. coming after there are subsidies on the table. So it's kind of the carrot was the IRA and all the subsidies and the stick is the EPA emission targets. And I think it's a very, very interesting move by the US government. And it it's definitely joining up the dots in a way that we really haven't seen anywhere else in the world. And uh, yeah, good luck to them, I say. Yeah, they were very tough. I remember back in 2016, I don't think I've looked at it since 2016, but I remember the concern and the European automakers was quite evident. There was like... Well, they were worried about fines. It really catalyzed the areas. So it's going to be very interesting if this goes through in this form because it's really going to focus focus attention from the big OEM groups, you know, not just the U.S., groups, but the other groups who are operating in America, like Toyota, et cetera. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, you do wonder if if they can actually reach these targets, given the availability of, of raw materials and, and uh, you know, cells that are likely to be in, in, uh, in production by that time. But um, it certainly is going to focus attention by the OEMs, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they've already encountered it w- once. More the European, the VWs of the world are quite familiar with this. Might be uh, something new for uh, GM and Ford to, well, Ford to less extent, but GM to deal with Atlantis, of course. And yeah. The experience as well. But, uh, uh, and then, you know, as you said, Toyota are well positioned, and that, that's what happened in, in 2016 as well. Yeah. All yeah. those hybrids. That seems like a, a, a reasonable place to finish up. 
I will say um, thank you to Cormac and uh, we'll look forward to to talking uh, next month. You're not going to any more conferences, are you? We may bump into each other at uh, Fast Markets Vegas. That's the end of June. End we of are June. both looking forward to to Fast Markets Vegas. It seems like it's going to be the conference. Oh, so we'll know, we'll, we'll know by next month whether I'm going or not. Unless Matt, Matthew can... Uh, whether, whether you can get uh, Business class seat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. Okay. You're gonna, well, you're gonna be much. a heavy gambler anyway. They they pay for guys like you to come out on private jets and. <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Okay. Cheerio. Bye. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for May. I'd just like to flag again our battery materials review yearbook, which you can download from the website for free. And as always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.